Welcome to Northgate Christian Fellowship's weekly message series. And now, here is Senior Pastor Ken Jensen. It seems like uh, every year that uh, this time of year, you know, predictions are made about the coming year. And sometimes they are made by... um, Expert analysts, you know, and they kind of look at, you know, people who deal in financial dealings, you know, and they, they kind of make predictions on what to expect in 2007 in our economy. Um, some have to do with technology, and they predict, you know, some of the new things that are going to come about uh, in the coming year. Some scientists, you know, predict, you know, what they expect, some medical breakthroughs for the coming year. And then, of course, there's always those off-the-wall things that these so-called psychics predict. You know, you ever picked up a... I never do this, honest, I never do... <laughs> But like those tabloids, you know, at the supermarket checkout, and they've got predictions for 2007. And I just, for the fun of it, you know, I just kind of looked through some of these things this year. And um, just things that you could be aware of and be, uh, be ready for in, uh, in 2007. And, and some of them are so generic, you know. They're just so generic. It's like they, they can't possibly not happen. Some celebrity this year is going to lose their life in a freak accident. Foul play will be involved. I mean, that's just like so specific. Wow, you know. Some major award winner is going to disclose something intensely personal during the award show that will eclipse the entire program. That's a prediction for 2007. Another prediction for 2007. Major, there will be a major airline crash in a large Midwestern city. It's like that happens every year. It just seems like this kind of stuff. Flooding in India. That's a surprise. This year, there will be flooding in India, and tens of thousands will be affected by waterborne illnesses. That stuff happens every year. Now, living in California, they have some very specific, and it depends on the psychic, okay? Sometime this year, an 8.2 earthquake will hit Los Angeles. Sometime in April, after a 7.9 earthquake in March. It's going to be a bad year if you live in L.A. Now, if you don't believe that one, a major 7.0 bigger earthquake will hit California in July or August. Like, this is going to be a bad year for California. And that will follow on major flooding that will occur in California between January and March. So it's like, you know, I'm glad I live in Northern California. That's all I could say. Um, it's also been predicted that this year, parts of what will be believed to be the lost city of Atlantis will be found in the Atlantic around Bermuda. Also predicted clear footage of UFOs will be caught on TV live during an outdoor event, speech, or sporting event. It's also been predicted a living Bigfoot will be captured in November or December this year. He will escape during transport, though not before high-quality pictures will finally be made of this creature. But the really, really big prediction this year, for you men, the really, really big story is going to be in fashion. Fashion will change this year when it is discovered that pants cause impotency, leading men to switch to skirts. Okay? That is the big prediction for this coming year. So, guys, you know, have your wife help you pick out your skirt now. Be prepared. That's going to happen. The truth is, nobody knows the future. Nobody does. No one can make accurate predictions what's going to happen this next week, much less in the next 12 months. Nobody knows. And yet, probably everybody in this room has certain goals or plans or dreams, things that you would like to see happen this year for you aspirations that you have, ambitions, things that you want to accomplish this next year. Probably everybody in this room has one of those kinds of things. And some of those will be met with success, and others will meet with disappointment and failure. But I will tell you this, that whatever 2007 holds for you 
and for me. The one essential that we need for this coming year is hope. Hope is absolutely absolutely essential when you think about the future. And not just kind of wishful thinking, general kind of hope. When I'm talking about hope for the believer, biblical hope, let me define it for you this way. It's the conviction that because of what God has done through Jesus Christ, His best for me is still ahead. That's biblical hope. Because of what Christ has done for us, we have a future and a hope. Paul, the apostle, wrote about it to the Roman church. In Romans 8, if you want to follow along, verse 16. It's a fairly lengthy passage. So if you want to follow along, please do. Otherwise, listen carefully. He says, The Spirit Himself testifies with our spirit that we are God's children. Now, if we are children, then we are heirs, heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ, if indeed we share in His sufferings, in order that we may also share in His glory, the best days that are ahead. I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. The creation waits in eager expectation for the children of God to be revealed. For the creation was subjected to frustration, not by its own choice, but by the will of the one who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself would be liberated from its bondage to decay and brought into the freedom and glory of the children of God. We know that the whole creation has been growing and is in the pains of childbirth right up to the present time. Not only so, but we ourselves who, also, who have the first fruits of the Spirit grown inwardly as we wait eagerly for our adoption, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. But hope that is seen is no hope at all. Who hopes for what they already have? But if we hope for what we do not yet have, we wait for it patiently. In the same way, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. We do not know how we ought to pray, but the Spirit Himself intercedes for us through wordless groans. And He who searches our hearts knows the mind of the Spirit because the Spirit intercedes for God's people in accordance with God's will. And we know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love Him, who have been called according to His purpose. For those who God foreknew, He also predestined to be conformed to the image of His Son, that He might be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. Those he predestined, he also called. Those he called, he also justified. And those he justified, he also glorified. What then shall we say in response to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also along with him graciously give us all things? Who will bring any charge against those whom God has chosen? It is God who justifies. Who is he that condemns? No one. Christ Jesus, who died more than that, who was raised to life, is at the right hand of God and is also interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall hardship, trouble, persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword? No, he says, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither the height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. That's our hope. Whatever our future, whatever our present, he says, this thing I know. These are the things that I am sure of. In Christ, we have a hope. And it doesn't matter what we might be going through right now, our hope will carry us through. And it doesn't matter what the future holds for us or what we might encounter. God is going to be there with us because his love will sustain us. He says, hope is the thing that will carry us. 
Hope is what brings clarity and focus and insight to our dreams and to our future, especially when we come up against frustration. And what I want to talk about this morning, kind of unpack here a little bit, is this whole idea of the difference that hope makes for your life and my life, this year especially. Some of the things that Paul tells us is, first of all, in our hope, our hope makes our groans become prayers. Let me ask you, just briefly, by a show of hands, kind of a quick poll. Who here in this past year, 2006, experienced any kind of unexpected things come up? Anybody? Anybody experienced any frustration in this past year? Maybe a loss, uncertainty, you know, maybe a disappointment, made some mistakes. Anybody in this room, you know, that your experience for the last year? Is there anybody in this room that does not expect that's going to happen again in 2007? You are an optimist. That's all I can say. He says, we groan. That's Paul's word for all of that kind of stuff. He says, it's groaning. He says, the whole creation has been groaning as in the pains of childbirth right up to the present time. Groaning is the expression of hopelessness. Groaning is the expression of helplessness. Groaning is the noise that you make when you back your car into the light post. That's groaning. Groaning is the sound you make when you lose your job or you blow an exam. Or you're agonizing over a decision. Groaning is a sound that is made by 49er fans when Alex Smith throws another interception. Groaning is a sound that Raiders fans make all season long. It's life in this world, folks. (laughs) He says all of creation groans. And he says not only that, we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit groan inwardly. We're not immune from groaning. There's no one in this room that gets a free pass. No one in this room has a hidden human uh, immunity idol. You know, no one gets the get-out-of-jail-free card. We too, he says, groan. That's life on this earth. We ourselves groan. Christians get sick. Christians lose their jobs. Christians experience loss. We're not immune from that. None of us. He says, but we still have hope. Yes, we groan, but we still have hope. The human heart is desperately in need of hope. It is the thing that keeps us going. Back in the 1960s, a man named Martin Seligman um, at the University of Pennsylvania in his studies coined a term called learned helplessness. And it came out of some studies that they were doing. And what they did in the study, and a number of studies, but one of the things that they did was um, they put dogs in a pen um, and, and subjected them to electric shock, mild electric shock. They didn't hurt them. They just, mild electric shock. And what they did was in half of the dogs, they put a lever with a light. And the light would come on about 10 seconds before the electric shock. And then if they pushed the lever, they would not get the shock. And in half of them, they were given a light and a lever that did absolutely nothing. (laughs) They got the shock no matter what. And and as they went through the studies, they found that that those who who got result by pushing the lever, they adapted to it. They learned how they could get over the circumstances. And those dogs that couldn't do anything about their situation just learned to live with the electric shock. And then what they did was they then put all of these dogs into another pen. And in this other pen... It was, it was kind of a larger pen, and it had a little short wall that divided one half of the pen from the other. 
And the one half of the pen was set up with the electric shock. And the other half had none. And those dogs that had been through the one where they knew that they could push a lever soon discovered that when the light came on and the shock came, they could jump over the barrier into the side of the pen that did not. And even though they were together with the dogs that had been with the ones who didn't get a lever to push, the ones who didn't get the lever to push to stop the electric shock just laid down and whined. Even though they too had access to just jump over the wall. And discovered that there is something about learned helplessness. When we get to the point where we begin to think there's nothing that's going to change. There's nothing I'm going to be able to do. And in fact, in humans, what it does is it starts to manifest itself in a couple of different ways. It becomes very, very personal. The human beings get to this point of learned helplessness where it's all me, it's all my fault. It's personal. And they begin to take on this idea that it's pervasive. It's, it's, it's gonna, it's all my life is going to be miserable. It's never going to change and permanent. And those three characteristics, when it becomes personal, when it becomes pervasive, when it becomes permanent, they lose all hope. Life is never going to change. It's, it's me. It's just me. And it's just who I am all the way through and through. And it's never going to change. That's what happens when you lose hope. And Paul says, yeah, we live in this world where we groan, but we are not without hope. And wise Christ followers over the years have learned to turn their groans into prayers. We're not immune from the groaning. But wise Christ followers learn to make their groans their prayers. In fact, look at verse 26. He says, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. We don't know even how we ought to pray, he says. But the Spirit himself intercedes for us through those wordless groans. He goes on and says, because he who searches our hearts knows the mind of the Spirit because the Spirit intercedes for God's people in accordance with the will of God. When our groans become our prayers, we get the beginnings of hope. Because we begin to understand, this isn't permanent. God is permanent. God is eternal. My problems are not. And it's not pervasive. It's limited. It's just this one situation. And God is bigger than that. And, it's, and there is nothing so personal that it cannot be changed. Because that is what God is doing in our lives. And that is our hope. That no matter what the circumstances, no matter what the groanings, God is still working. And as we learn to bring Him into the equation, when we invite Him into the situation, hope is restored. God is still at work. The second thing He tells us about hope is that in hope, we begin to understand God's still at work. In hope, we understand God is doing His work. He goes on in verse 28 and says, We know that in all things God works for the good of those who love Him, who have been called according to His purpose. Now again, remember, this does not say all things are good. It doesn't even say all things work out to be good. He says in all things God works good. You see, when you say yes to God's call, we talked about this last week, when you say yes to God's call on your life, everything changes. God does His work. He begins to change your perspective. He gives you a bigger picture about things. He expands your, your thinking to a kingdom mentality. That's what happens when you give your life to Him. And what happens in all of this is what He is doing is this, verse 29. The good that He is doing, that God also, God foreknew, God foreknew 
he, those who God foreknew, he predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. That's what God's doing. And God will use the, the circumstances of your life and the experiences of your life to shape you. That's what he's doing. He is shaping you more and more and more and more into his image. That's what God's doing in your life. And a lot of times we don't see that. We wonder when we come up against frustration or we come up with big decisions and we're not sure what to do and we want to know God's will and what is it that God's doing in my life and we want to find out and we don't see it. And it's like, do you remember those magic eye pictures? When our kids were younger, we had, my, my son loved these things. They were like these pictures that you just stared at and stared at and you had to kind of, and there was a hidden picture inside the picture. And so much of us think that's what, you know, there's some hidden picture here that God has for us. And the truth is, he's told us what he's doing. He's shaping us. Through these experiences, God is shaping us more and more. And God's will for our life is that we become more and more like him. That's what he says. Creation waits in eager expectation for the children of God to be revealed. The whole creation has been groaning as in the pains of childbirth. In the process of all of this, God is showing himself in you. God's character is being revealed in you. And the choices that you make, even those big decisions, and the way that you handle disappointment at broken dreams are all a part of how God is revealing his character in you. Because the truth is, the choices that we make reveal who we really are. Creation waits in eager expectation for the children of God to be revealed. God's showing himself in you and through you. And the way that you respond to those kind of situations, the way that you make your choices are revealing what God's really doing in your life. A lot of times I have people come and they want to know, um, you know, I'm faced with this big decision. How do I know God's will? Or I'm facing this really big problem. How do I know what God wants in all of this? You know, does God have some special plan? Does God have some secret will here? And, and, and I don't believe that. I don't believe God's will for our life is this perfect bullseye that we've got to hit every time. In fact, I think quite the opposite. That in many things, God gives us the freedom to choose. Because in our choices, we're revealing what's really going on inside. Dallas Willard puts it this way. It is God's will that we ourselves should have a great part in determining our path through life. This does not mean he's not with us. Far from it. God both develops and for our good tests our character by leaving us to decide. A child cannot develop into a responsible, competent human being if he or she is always being told what to do. Personality and character are in their very essence inner directedness. This inner directedness is perfected in redemption. A child's character cannot be known even to himself until he is turned loose to do what he wants. It is precisely what he wants and how he handles those that he wants that both reveal and make him the person that he is. He says this whole groaning process, it's the pains of childbirth. Now, when my wife was pregnant with our first child, we went through this whole natural childbirth class thing, you know, and I was, I was going to be the coach. You know, that was the whole idea. I'm going to be the coach. And, and we were told in this natural childbirth classes, you know, if you do this right, you can have natural childbirth without any pain, you know. And it was up to me. I was the coach. That was my job, you know. So I thought, well, I'm the coach. If, it, if that can be done, I'm going to be the one to do it, you know. 
So, you know, um, the day came that Aaron was going to be born and and, uh, Betty's water broke and and it was time to go to the hospital and everything was going fine, you know, no problems, no pain whatsoever. You know, it was I was a youth pastor at the time. It was Wednesday night youth meeting, so we had to stop by and, you know, drop off some materials because one of my uh, other leaders was going to lead the study that night, you know. And all the kids in the youth were going, you're having a baby? What are you doing here? So, oh, we've got this under control. It's natural childbirth. Not a problem. So we made our way to the hospital, you know, and we sat there and, you know, she had no real pains. Everything was going along smoothly. So we sat in the hospital room. We turned on the TV. Well, you know, if there's a TV on in the room, that's where my focus is, you know. So after a while, you know, Betty starts saying it's time to turn off the TV. I go, yeah, just a minute. Just a minute. It's time to turn off the TV. Okay. I'm coaching here, you know. Now, I know that she experienced real pain. I know because she threw a washcloth at me. It was real. Labor pains are real. I used to think they weren't. They are. And she had a fairly easy delivery. But the pain was still real. And even though I was there to coach it, the pain was still real. And even as our kids were born and started to grow up, they went through growing pains. And all through the process, you know, we tried to teach them right from wrong and what were wise choices and what were unwise choices. But ultimately, it becomes their choices to make. The same thing is true with God's children. God leaves many of the choices in your life up to you. As long as they are consistent with his word, as long as they are consistent with his work in your life, a lot of the choices I think he leaves up to you and me. But understand, the choices that we make, especially in times of pressure, reveal what's really going on on the inside. It's what we want. It's how we get it. It's the way that we pursue it that reveal the real you and me. And when he says this groaning is all part of how God is revealing his children. He's leaving those choices up to you. But he says begin to think in different ways about these choices. Start thinking in your dreams and ambitions along the lines of how will this develop my spiritual character? How will this reveal God's character at work in me? How will this be a part of what he is doing in me and in this world? How will this affect my ability to serve him and his kingdom? See, I think those are the bigger questions we should be asking ourselves when faced with a job transfer, with the school we might attend, with the person we might marry. So those big questions in life, I think God gives us a great deal of liberty. But I think the questions we need to be asking ourselves, how do I reveal God's character in me? How does this choice show his work in my life? good news is we're told in Philippians 1 6 that he who began this good work in you will carry it on to completion God's still working and the last thing in hope we begin to count on God's love to sustain us that's the best promise of all he says what should we say in response to all of these things if God is for us who can be against us See, ultimately, our hopes and our dreams and our choices and our decisions, they all rest in in God's character at work in our lives. God is for us. And so many people go through this whole decision-making process and and try and decide, thinking they're in a chess game with God. And they're trying to figure out, what is God doing here? Or they go through times of difficulty and they think, God must have left me. And he's saying, no, God is for you. God is for you. And that has been God's heart for people all through creation. 
all through the Old Testament, all through the New Testament, all through human history. God is for you. One of the most hopeful verses in Scripture, it's quoted very often, is from Jeremiah 29. I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans to prosper you and not to harm you. Plans to give you hope and a future. Now understand, when Jeremiah said those words, he was writing those words to a group of people that were in exile off in Babylon. That the Babylonian Empire had come in and overthrown Israel, had carted off a big part of the leadership and brought them out into exile into Babylon, had removed them from their homes, removed them from their property, removed them from their families. They were completely hopeless and had no idea what was going to be their future. And God says to Jeremiah, write these words. I know the plans I have for you. They are plans to prosper you and not to harm you. Plans to give you a hope and a future. That's God's heart. And that's God's heart for you. And if you think that doesn't apply, if you think, well, he hasn't spoken those words specifically to me. Paul says he did not spare even his own son, but gave him up for us all. Won't he also give us everything else? There's God's heart again. He is doing all that he can to let you know he loves you. He is for you. He is working in your life. He's working in your hopes and in your future and your dreams, even in your disappointments. And I love these words. One of my favorite passages in all Scripture. For I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. God has already given us the final word. He says, look at the cross. If you doubt my love for you, look at the cross. If you doubt that I care about your circumstances, look at the cross. If you doubt that you have any future or any hope, look at the cross. Would you bow your heads with me? I want to give you a few minutes this morning to reflect on those words. I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate you from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. You're here this morning at the beginning of 2007 and you're faced with a big, major life decision. Ask yourself in the process, how will this choice reveal God's character in me? How will my choice regarding this decision impact my relationship with Him and my relationship with His people? How will the choice that I am about to make Will it increase or will it lessen my effectiveness in God's kingdom? I think those are the big questions to be asking. And if you're here this morning and you're groaning and there's hurt and pain, disappointment and frustration in your life, let your groans be your prayer. He knows your heart. 
Scripture says, His Spirit super prays. Even when you don't know what to say. And in all of this, understand the hope that we have is because of what Jesus Christ has done for us. And if you've never taken that very, very first step of faith, say, okay, Lord, give up my life. Put it in your hands. I understand your love for me and the price you paid for me. And I want my life to begin to reveal your character and that new identity. And maybe that's your prayer this morning. Let's join together. Lord, as we sit here this morning, three weeks into a new year, some of us have already experienced disappointment, frustration. Some of us are carrying hurts left over from the year past. Some of us are facing big decisions. We're not too sure what 2007 holds for any of us. The truth, we're not even sure what this next week holds in store. But like Paul, these things we count on. That in all of it, you're working good. And we can trust you. That in all of it, you are revealing your character in our lives. And it'll show up. And in all of it, you are for us. And your love your mercy and your grace will sustain us. That is our hope. And we bring it squarely back on you once more this morning. Whatever our dreams, whatever our plans, whatever our ambitions, Lord, they're all in your hands. Let our lives reflect that truth. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to this week's message. We trust that you'll join us again soon for another uplifting message from Northgate Christian Fellowship located in Venetia, California.